indeed Jesus' name is the name above all names. Beautiful name of Jesus. Well, church family, as a, as a church, our mission is to invest in people who will impact their world for Jesus. That's who we are. That's our true north, is that indeed we want to see the nations and our neighbors treasure Jesus above all things. A few weeks, excuse me, several months ago, we did a sermon series called For Impact. We walked through four different ways we as a church can impact our world for Jesus. And one of the ways we did that was through initiating gospel conversations. So the last two weeks, I've had three different gospel conversations that have just come out of nowhere, but it's just by being intentional. So a couple weeks ago, I was down in Lafayette, Alabama, I'm sitting down for dinner at a Jack's, and as I'm sitting there, this old codger comes and sits down next to me. And I'm like, man, the whole restaurant's open. Why are you sitting next to me, man? And so as he sits down, I'm like, well, this is the Lord. And so I just said, hey, man, do you know Jesus? And he started smiling, and he said yes. And he told me his story of how he came to faith in Jesus. It was awesome. Well, this week, I'm at the doctor's office, and I'm getting worked on my shoulder and the ankle, you know, getting old. Golly, what's up with that, right? So as I'm getting worked over, I've got a room full of people, and I'm like, man, I want to share Jesus here. So this guy next to me, he's all tatted up. He's in the army, and we're talking. Hey, man, do you know Jesus? Man, I do. And he tells me his story of how he came to faith in Jesus. And then this week, I'm doing some work in my yard. My neighbor comes out, and we start talking. And I said, hey, man, have you ever come to a point in your life in which you've given your life to Jesus? And he said, man, I have. Let me tell you. So, so far, everybody I'm talking to already knows the Lord. <laughs> Okay, but we got to stay after it, okay? But hey, here's what's cool. So one of those four challenges several months ago during the series was to internalize the word. And so I challenged us as a church for all of us to memorize one Bible verse per week. Well, there is a woman, a mom in our church right now, a mom of three, in which she emailed me this week and said, I really took that to heart. And I really wanted to really stay on top of that. And so I just wanted to let you know that I have just completed memorizing the entire book of James. And I'm like, there you go, girlfriend. That's how it's done. I love it. So, so, so good. I told her, make sure you put a marble in the jar for every verse that you've memorized. So anyways, it's, it's just a great way for us. Let me encourage you to stay on top of that. Keep inviting people. Keep initiating gospel conversations. Keep internalizing the word of God because this is your way forward as to impact our world for Jesus. You know, as you, when you look at a child, you know that a healthy connection, a healthy relationship has developed between a child and his parent when the child gets hurt. When a child experiences pain, whether it's a scraped knee or a breakup with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, it's where they run when suffering comes. Last week, one of my sons, who uh, was born in Ethiopia, he was out playing basketball in our front yard, uh, our front driveway, and he, he fell. And so g blood is, is gushing everywhere, and he made a beeline to me because he knew where to go to get compassion, to get comfort, to get care. But as his father, I also know exactly what it's like to skin my knee, to go through that. You see, he knew where to go when a trial, when pain was coming. Well, as Simon Peter is writing his letter to believers who are scattered throughout modern-day Turkey, they are suffering for the sake of the gospel. 
And he is trying to direct them to where they are to go, and they are to run to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the point he is making in 1 Peter chapter 3. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going through a sermon series as a faith family entitled Imperishable Righteousness, in which we are walking through the book of 1 Peter together. And we're finally getting to the point where we are concluding chapter 3, and we see that in Christ we have a righteousness that has been given to us by Jesus. In fact, we, we, we possess the righteousness of Christ, and now we are to go and live out that righteousness. Now, Simon Peter is at the end of a section in which he's talking about undeserved suffering. As believers are losing their land, they're losing their jobs, they're losing their families, even some of them are losing their very lives for the sake of Christ and his gospel, Simon Peter is writing to them to encourage them to remain faithful, don't back down, stand firm in the true grace of God. Now you see, now he gets to the end of chapter 3 and he holds up Jesus as the model, as the forerunner of how to deal with suffering. Indeed, Jesus is not some dictator who's in his palace, seated back with his feet propped up, sipping Diet Coke, while the rest of his people suffer. No, no, no. He left the glory of heaven and he experienced suffering. He knows what it's like to endure hardship and pain. And so we see God who now takes on flesh in the form of Jesus who knows exactly what it's like to deal with suffering. And so as these first century believers are indeed suffering for the sake of the gospel, we see Simon Peter reminding them of the gospel. You see, the gospel is the good news of Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection for sinners. This is the gospel. This is something we hold fast to as a church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that I have this as first priority, meaning there's nothing more important than this. Now, this gospel that you and I believe and hold fast to, it's not something that we came up with. It's not like a group of Westwood leaders went into a back room and thought, what can we rally our lives around? No, no, no. This has been revealed to us. God has shown us how we can be restored into a right relationship with himself, and it's found in this good news. It's found in the work of Jesus on our behalf. So with this gospel being what sustains us and what saves us, I also want you to see this morning is that the gospel is where we run when suffering comes. Let me see number one. Here in the text, I want you to see that when suffering comes, believers run to the death of Jesus. Look at verse 18. Peter writes, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. That word for, verse 18, it connects back to the previous section. He's reminding these elect exiles who, uh, who have been scattered for the sake of suffering for Jesus. They're running for their lives. He's reminding them, don't be surprised. Don't be discouraged when you suffer. And so as these first century believers are facing persecution for the sake of the gospel, Peter is, verse 18, holding up Jesus. Jesus is the forerunner. He is the example of suffering. Do you remember the moment you gave your life to Christ? Do you remember where you were or who was there when it happened? I know I do. 
I was 18 years old, and I was in my bedroom by myself, and I remember where all the furniture was in the room, and I remember what I was thinking and feeling, and I didn't have a full understanding of Jesus. I just knew that I was a sinner, and I needed the gospel. And so I got on my knees, and I cried out to God, and, and he saved me. But you see, it's from that point, I have begun to grow in my knowledge and in my understanding of what happened on that day. If you put your faith in Jesus, you see, there's a point in which it began when you gave your life to Christ, and now on this side of your salvation, on this side of your commitment to Jesus, you're learning about what happened. You're looking backwards saying, what in the world was that? And what we see in this gospel is that we begin to grow in our knowledge and understanding of what happened. Well, here, Simon Peter is reminding these believers, this is what happened to you. I want to remind you of the death of Jesus and what he did for you in the gospel. So maybe it was for you, is it vacation Bible school or at your kitchen table with your parents? Or maybe it was when some preacher stood up and preached the gospel and gave an invitation and you responded. Maybe as you were driving down the road and God was just speaking to your heart, you had to pull over and you gave your life to Christ. Or maybe you're making a hike through the woods and you just, you're overcome by the presence of God and you hit your knees and you give your life to Jesus. Wherever and whenever it happened for you, here Simon Peter is unpacking for us what God has done for us. What happened in that moment? I want you to see this here in the text, what Jesus has done for you. The first is crucifixion. Crucifixion, look at verse 18. Peter says, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all. You see, at the cross, Jesus suffered for sins. Now, these weren't his sins. These are our sins. Every sinful thought and word and attitude and action that you and I have ever committed was what R.C. Sproul calls a, an act of cosmic treason. We have sinned against God, but motivated by love, Jesus suffered for sins once for all. This was a one-time act. There's no need to repeat the crucifixion of Jesus, for his death was once for all. Now, in the Old Testament, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies in the temple one time a year. And when he would go in there, he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat for the sake of the forgiveness of God's people, to forgive them of their sins. But you see, the high priest would have to go every year. Year after year after year, he would go in there and keep offering the same sacrifice. Why? It was never enough. It was insufficient. Well, what we see here is Simon Peter gave, is pointing us to Jesus who gave a once-for-all sacrifice. Jesus does not need to be crucified again. It has happened one time, and it was sufficient to cover the sins of all who believe. And so what we see here is the crucifixion of Jesus on our behalf. He suffered once-for-all for sins. But it's not just crucifixion. I want you to see that Jesus did something for us at the cross, which is number two, substitution. Substitution. Look at verse 18. The text says, the righteous for the unrighteous. Some translations may have the just for the unjust. What we see is the death of Jesus. He came to give his life as an exchange for us. And the way I, I want to try to model this for you or kind of illustrate it for you is in these two different people right here. Fumble. There we go. Good safe. Okay, so here's what's happening. Jesus right here, here is what he has accomplished for us. 
In him is fullness of joy. He is fully God and fully man, and he is just. He is perfect. He is sinless. The Bible says that he is blameless and he is righteous. All of this is found in Jesus. Now for us, all of us are here. Ephesians 2 says that we are, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. We are by nature objects of wrath. Our sin has separated us from God. Our hearts are evil. We are full of pride. We think of me first. Okay, this is who we are. But here's what happened. When you heard the gospel, something changed about you when you believed. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that God made him who knew no sin become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So here's what happened. When you heard the gospel and you believed upon Jesus, you are no longer dead, but by his grace, you have been made alive. You're no longer dead. Here's what also will happen. When you gave your life to Christ, all of your sin is washed away. The blood of Jesus atones, pays for, and covers all of your sin so you are completely washed clean. You are righteous, holy, and blameless in his sight. So all of your sin was placed upon Jesus at the cross, and here's what happens at the moment you believe. When you believed upon Jesus, all of his righteousness is now applied to you. Do you see what happens in substitution? Not only did Jesus take your place at the cross, he takes his righteousness and he imputes it. He places it upon you. So when God sees you, he sees someone who is just. He sees sinless, perfect, righteous. This is who you are in Christ. This is how God sees you. You'd be thinking, Matt, do you know my life, Kenneth? I'm nowhere near that. And I want to say to you, neither am I. In fact, the closer I get to Jesus, the more I realize how far I fall short. But you see, the beauty is that that's not how God sees me, and that's not how he sees you if you're in Jesus. Indeed, this is how God sees you. This now defines your identity. This is who you are. You see, as these first century believers are suffering for the sake of the gospel, he is reminding them what Jesus did through his death. The just for the unjust. The righteous for the unrighteous. So the crucifixion accomplished substitution, which then leads to number three. Oh, this is good. Reconciliation reconciliation. Look at verse 18. That he might bring you to God. This is why Jesus came. It's because God and man were separated by sin. And we are unable to get to him on our own good works, through religion, through philosophy, by trying to turn over a new leaf, New Year's resolutions. All of it fails to measure up to his standard of perfection. Therefore, there has to be a way that we can have a reconciliation. Parents, you're familiar with this. When you have two children who are sore at one another, they're disagreeing, they're fighting, you have to step in and be peacemaker. Well, in the gospel, there is a peacemaker. God and man are separated and we are unable to reconcile. 
Therefore, we need a mediator, someone who will go between the two of us to bring us together. Enter Jesus of Nazareth, who is 100% God and 100% man. He represents both, and he brings peace through his death on the cross. You see, his crucifixion provided substitution, which then provided reconciliation. You have now been reconciled to God. You have been made right in his sight. You are now restored into a right relationship with him. Do you see how amazing grace is? Do you see how compelling the gospel is? There's nothing sweeter. There's nothing better than this. This liberates you from legalism in which you try to keep all these rules to keep God off your back. God's like, you can't keep my rules. It's imperfect. That's why I sent my son who kept my rules that you couldn't keep, who died the death that you deserved, who rose again to give you new life. And so through your trust in him, you're now set free. This also sets you free from ever wanting to run away. Why would you ever want to run away from a Savior whose love is so great that he not only changes your status in heaven, he changes your status right here and now. This is what the gospel does. And so as Peter is writing to these believers who are suffering for the sake of the gospel, he's reminding them of what Jesus has accomplished for them through his death on the cross. I want someone to see number two. That when suffering comes, we are to run to the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 18, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the spirits. Jesus' flesh, it means his body. He was put to death on the cross. Now on the cross, he did not pass out on the cross. He, he did not partially die. No, no, no. He was fully dead. You see, Romans were experts in execution. And they knew that if he wasn't dead, he was such a revolutionary, he would cause a huge uprising if he was not dead. And he was dead as dead could be, but death could not hold him. Jesus rose from the dead. He is alive today. Verse 18, he was made alive by the spirits. Jesus rose from the dead. You see, the Spirit of God raised the Son of God for the glory of God. You see, this is the backbone of what we believe. The resurrection is everything to us. It is not just something that we celebrate one Sunday every spring. The resurrection affects every moment of our life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that if Christ is not risen, we are to be pitied among all men. What a waste of time. If Jesus is not risen, let's close the doors, call home the missionaries, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But Christ is risen. Jesus is alive. You can go outside Jerusalem and his bones aren't there. We have a reason to get up in the morning. This is your purpose, and it's the glory of God in the face of Jesus. We have a gospel to believe and a gospel to share. The nations and our neighbors need this good news. And the good news is, is that our Savior is not dead, but indeed he is alive. 
And so Simon Peter is driving these believers not only to the death of Jesus, but to the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus plants hope into the heart of the believer that death does not have the final word. So as these believers are facing potential crucifixion, or like the Apostle Paul, according to church tradition, beheading, as they are losing their very lives, Peter's reminding them, you're not home yet. This is not your final stop. We're passing through. We are elect exiles. And the reason that's true is because there's an empty tomb outside of Jerusalem. And so when suffering comes your way, run to the death of Jesus and run to the resurrection of Jesus. But I want you to see number three, that when suffering comes, you run to the preaching of Jesus. Now, verse 19, y'all, this is a difficult verse to interpret. Throughout church history, there are several interpretations, and y'all, some of them are just straight wacky, okay? But if we follow the sequence of verse 18, then at some point after Jesus' resurrection, but before his ascension, Jesus, verse 19, went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient. When God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. You see, Jesus went to proclaim the victory of what he had accomplished. So, okay, who are these spirits in prison? Well, in Genesis 6, before the worldwide flood took place, these spirits were demons that had taken on human flesh. They married women, and then they started having babies. These babies that they were having, they were now half demon, half human. And as wickedness is multiplying across the face of the earth, evil is, is spreading. The world was wicked through and through. And Peter addresses this again in 2 Peter 2. But then also Jude, verse 6, says this, says, The angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. So the Lord saw the world was corrupt. It was full of evil and wickedness widespread around the world. But what's interesting here is that it is now time for the Lord to wipe mankind off the face of the earth because wickedness is so bad, but save one man. Who is that one man? Well, the scripture tells us his name is Noah. While Noah is swinging hammers and measuring crossbeams, he is building the ark of God. God is being patient. God is giving mankind the opportunity to repent and to turn to him, but nevertheless, they didn't. The spirits that he put in prison, they were cast into a place of torment and isolation. That is where they remain. They are awaiting their final punishment, according to Revelation 20, in the eternal lake of fire. So Jesus, verse 19, went and preached to these demons a sermon. But this was not a sermon with an invitation or an altar call. This was a sermon of declaration of triumph. Jesus went and he declared to these demons that he had won the war. He went into this place and said, I have won. 
I have defeated sin. I have defeated death. Evil does no longer have reign or rule or dominion because I have triumphed through my death and through my resurrection. He went to proclaim the victory that he had accomplished in the gospel. Like a running back who scores a touchdown and spikes the football, Jesus goes to these evil spirits and says, victory is mine. Like a general who comes home celebrating the victories of war, Jesus comes and declares, I have won this battle. It all belongs to me. That was the sermon he preached or something like that. It was a proclamation of victory. Saying, I have won. I have overcome. And this is what we celebrate as believers, is that Jesus himself even went and preached to the most evil beings there were and says, I beat you. And I did so through my death and resurrection. But I want you to see number four. We not only run to the preaching of Jesus, but we run to the rescue plan of Jesus. Look at verse 20. Scripture says, in it, Okay, it there, it's referring back to the ark, referring back to the boat that Noah is building here. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So as Noah is building the ark, God was patient with people. His grace was abounding during this period of time frame in which he's extending people the opportunity to repent and turn to him, but they refuse. Therefore, verse 20, eight people, Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives, these eight were saved through water. You see, the ark was God's provision for saving Noah from God's judgment of sin. Here in verse 20, Peter's connecting the flood in the days of Noah as an analogy for the salvation, for the rescue that has been provided for us through Jesus. Don't miss this right here. Jesus is the ark that saves God's people from judgment. That's the point Peter's making here. Just as the ark saved and protected Noah from God's wrath towards sin, you and I who are hidden in Christ, we are saved not by a wooden boat, but through a wooden cross. This is driving us to Jesus. Jesus is the ark that saved Noah. Excuse me, just as the ark saved Noah and his family from God's judgment, Jesus saves us from God's judgments. But then verse 21, Peter takes this imagery a step further. Baptism, he says, corresponds to this, meaning that baptism is a copy of a spiritual truth. So while the world around Noah and his family was corrupt and it was perishing, we see that he and his family were saved. Well, as first century Roman rule is perishing, it is wicked and falling apart. Indeed, their persecution of believers is rocking the boat. The Lord is saying, you're safe. You are protected in the ark of my son. He will protect you from coming judgment. Well, Westwood, the world around us is perishing. It is falling apart just as God said that it would. 
Therefore, us who belong to Jesus, we are holding fast to Jesus because he promises to keep us safe and protected in the ark of his love in his great gospel. And so as we suffer in this world, the Lord is reminding us of the rescue plan, of the salvation that he has provided for us in Jesus. That indeed Jesus is the ark that saves us from the judgment that is to come. Well then, What's interesting is that then Peter, verse 21, says that baptism now saves you. Wait a minute, Kenneth. What are you going to do with that? Because you said that we're saved by grace through faith. This says that baptism saves you. Not, you said it was not works. Well, the answer is it's not by works. Okay, so why does this say that baptism saves you? And it's because Peter is not referencing a baptism of water. He is referencing the gospel. In fact, he tells us that the baptism he's talking about is, look at the text, verse 21, not of the removal of dirt from the body. He said, I'm not talking about the baptism in the Jordan River in which you're dunked. I'm not talking about swimming pools or baptistries or hot tubs where you go underwater. I'm not talking about anything that takes the dirt off the body. That's not the baptism I'm talking about. He says, the baptism I'm talking about, verse 21, is the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, the only baptism that saves you is the one in which you're completely dry. It's the one in which you are trusting in the spiritual baptism you undergo when you trust in Jesus. When you believe upon the death, verse 18, and the resurrection, verse 21, of Jesus Christ, that is the baptism that saves you. You see, water baptism does not save you. Faith in Jesus Christ saves you. That's the point he's driving home here. Jesus rescues anyone who experiences the baptism of spiritual regeneration when you believe the gospel. You see, that water over there is alabaster's finest. We don't add pixie dust to it. We don't add secret magic potion to it. That's not at all. It's just water. But when someone gets in that water, they're telling a story. That water symbolizes an outward evidence of an inward transformation. They are telling the world, I belong to Jesus. I believe that he died for me. I believe that in him I am buried and I am raised to walk in newness of life. We have three baptisms today. We had two at this service that you've already gotten to see, another one coming at the next service. And what's happening is these who are getting baptized are saying, I belong to Jesus. This is an outward drama of an inward transformation that's taking place in the hearts. You see, baptism is, is God's way of saying, this is how you identify with me. That water does not save you. My son saves you. You're not saved by your works. You're saved by the works of my son. You're not saved so that you can get the glory. You're saved so I can get the glory. That is what God is in hot pursuit of. And so as we suffer for the sake of Jesus, we are to run to the rescue plan of Jesus. Fifth and finally, I want you to see that when suffering comes, you run to the rescue plan of Jesus. No, I'm sorry, number five, the sovereignty of Jesus. You run to the sovereignty of Jesus. Verse 22, Jesus who has gone into heaven 
and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. You see, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the right hand is a place of supremacy, of authority. It's a place of power and prestige. Well, when Jesus, when he completed his earthly ministry, according to Acts chapter 1, he ascended. He went back up into heaven. He bodily returned up into the presence of God in heaven where he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Indeed, Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that God has highly exalted him and given him the name that's above all names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as you're suffering, Peter says, I want to remind you of Jesus' sovereignty, of his authority, his power and dominion over all things. So what are you going through today? Maybe there's things going on with your job that just are not working. Maybe you've got a child who is just making foolish choices. Maybe things are going on in your marriage that just you're not connecting. Maybe you've recently gotten some bad news from your doctor. Whatever it is that you are going through, Simon Peter's point is to run to Jesus. Go to the one who knows you and loves you and gave his life for you. The one who is seated on high, ruling and reigning over all things. You see, the impact point is this, is that when suffering comes, run to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, trial and tragedy is not anything we can avoid. In fact, for us who belong to Jesus, it's reality. But for us who belong to Jesus, the call is to run to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just to be saved, not just to be sanctified, but especially when you're suffering.